Oh my god. Hi, Gavin, I guess. Hi, Louie. Okay, I know it's the start of spooky season. You're feeling really turned up. I'm uh, evil as can be. That's the... I mean... I just feel it coursing through my veins. You are Jennifer Lopez. Let's get louder now. <laughs> Come on, let's make it hot. <laughs> oh my god. You Other know. lyrics to that song. Yeah. <laughs> Our national anthem, of course. Yes. yes. Um, and much like the national anthem after Let's Get Loud... Let's get loud. That's exactly how I sing the national anthem. So yeah, correct. and then the kids are in the cages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a reference to two Super Bowls ago. <laughs> okay, that was the best Super Bowl oh, yeah, of yeah. all time. Yeah, yeah. I love also having said the best Super Bowl of all time, and like I don't give a fuck who won. I don't know who played. Oh, I don't know. Is it soccer, right? Whatever. Super Bowl is just about halftime for. And also, we're not going to talk about last year's because the weekend Newsville. Yeah. Like, make it gay or get it out of here. <laughs> we're uh, that's, I was going to say that is uh that's the motto of the show: make it gay or get, get it, it out, out of or here. get it out of here. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast where we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini genre, and we talk about what's good, and we talk about what's bad, we throw in some history, How's put that? it in our culture, and I'm doing a little dance, a little safety dance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> friends can't dance, and if they don't dance, then it's the Mixed Reviews. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. Especially if your name's Gavin. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes, we, we you know take two weeks with our subject, we watch as much as we can, and we're back here to report to you what's good, what's bad, and a little bit, you know, just, like, educate yourself. Just learn something new. And, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else in between, um, like I mentioned up top, it's the beginning of our spooky season. Um, Gavin is more powerful than ever. It's true. He, um, his eyes are red. <laughs> um, but that's just the drugs. <laughs> so, yes, spooky season, we're... Every year since we've started, we've done two spooky episodes um, in the month of October. This will be our first. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to our last episode, which was our All-Stars 100th episode. Oh, my God. It was so much fun. And I'm so happy we are able to do it in that way. And sort of like, hopefully you guys had as much fun as we did. I think the response from our All-Star winners was very good. I think people were really like into our picks i'm also very excited that our last um the last social media post you made was about our all-star genre episode which was zombies which was um my pick and also um one of my favorite episodes of all time and happens to be <laughs> one of our spooky episodes absolutely who would have thought and what's great about that is we you know we have all these genre breakdowns that you can go back and listen to and hopefully they you know maybe they've become part of your halloween rotation who knows if, knows. if you're like me you celebrate it all month long so you mm-hmm. got to fill those hours somehow somehow some way <laughs> um so there was no poll because no. um why would we have one uh so because it's our show because it's our show <laughs> uh do we have any old business gavin want to get to before we get into this new episode i do have one thing that i wanted to point out okay um i got a lovely piece of mail from michelle ice who is a listener of ours and she actually won the parker posey book way back when i think that's almost a year ago now i don't know no close close to it right beginning of summer maybe but it's a wonderful (laughs) halloween card with her kids on it so thank you so much michelle ice 
I, I really, I don't know. This is very sweet. I've never received mail as part of a podcast, but like physical mail. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful spooky season. Absolutely. Um, your kids look really cute. I too want to be Iron Man. I too want to be um, Ray, a bat. No, I, no, I want to be the bat. Oh, the bat. The bat looks the bat. really nice. Um, <laughs> especially the flip flops. Uh, so, Gavin, who are we talking about to kick off this month of being a spooky? <laughs> so this episode, we are taking it down to the dark and the deep depths. We're going into the genre and we're coming out with the master of horror himself, John Carpenter. Oh, That's yeah. right. It is a director dissection. Yes. Yes. John Carpenter, who we've um, maybe like intersected a little bit like yeah. obviously um he's got a whole movie about vampires we did a vampire episode jamie lee curtis yes we also um saw christine for our um stephen king episode and i watched starman for the first time for our road trips on film oh. so yeah, yeah um so yeah he's been in the periphery but now we are diving deep um you gavin clearly obviously have a more um intimate no not intimate but like a, a we're deeper, best friends <laughs> john good old johnny <laughs> uh johnny horror uh no but you like have seen a bunch of his mo- a lot of yes. his movies i had not seen before i famously am not a spooky bitch um so you're an honorary one and that's what's you. important and that's what's important um how did you come to know uh, John Carpenter and his work. Most likely the first John Carpenter film I ever saw was Halloween. Okay. I feel like that's most people's introduction to right. him. You know, it's the, the, and for him, it was really his first big breakthrough. Assault on Precinct 13 is certainly classic in its own right, but Halloween was sort of where it's at. He redefined the slasher genre. Some say created the slasher genre. And I remember seeing it as a kid and it being so scary and atmospheric and tense. And <laughs> I can imagine you. I was seven years old and I was like, whoa, this murder yeah. is sick. I was, I was like, get him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pop off, yeah. Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I just really remember that. And I think the thing that works really so well about that, too, is how well everything in that movie is working in conjunction with it, each other. You know, it's obviously a great, interesting story, but I think Carpenter's direction of the actors is really great. I think the cinematography is really great. You know, I've heard him talk about wanting to make sure that, you know, things were dark enough that at points you could only see bits of Michael Myers' face, and that's right. it, or the mask, the shape, if you will. And... Yeah, I think I don't know. I think that it, that's it's the it's the complete package. It's the unit. Right. So it's a perfect place to get your start from and then move out from there. And maybe the second thing I saw was the thing on TV. So not anywhere near as disgusting as it actually is. Right. I was gonna say, what are they showing of the thing on <laughs> TNT? Just like, a lot of reaction shots. Okay. Okay. Like, I was cutaways. thoroughly disgusted. <laughs> Um, I like saw an interview with him where he was like, the thing was one of the first times where like they were showing the monster. Yeah. Like and typically it, like they don't show the monster. And, and that's like, why it got bad reviews at first. Cause people thought it was like too much style, no substance. And, but I think the thing that sells the thing is the substance <laughs> is the fact that you really get to spend time with these characters. And we're going to get to that in a moment, but like, I think that's sort of what makes Carpenter special is he truly is a, a character 
director. He really likes his subjects and he wants you to like them and he wants you to feel like they're people. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about Halloween is that the teens in Halloween feel like teens. They don't feel like, you know, adults playing kids. They don't feel like teens in an abstract. They're not like too clever for their age. They just feel like dumb pot smoking hypersexual teens. Okay, don't call me that. And um that's why you're wearing a shirt that says it then. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I think what's great about the thing is you have you know, it's very testosterone laden, but it's it's like all these men trapped together, paranoid. Not- they want to kiss. Yeah, they want <laughs> But they can't because the monster <laughs> the monster um it passes through kissing <laughs> and, and other ways. Uh yeah, so I, I don't know. That's one of the things I think is sort of fascinating what sets Carpenter apart from sort of all of the imitators or the people that that want to do what he does that, you know, as as time goes on, have sort of taken up the mantle. And I, I was also thinking about this today. He's sort of the last of the old guard. You know, we we don't really have that many genre filmmakers quite like him. There's the sort of the, the upstarts and the in-betweens. And like the in-betweens are like, Guillermo del Toro, which we have a full episode on. The upstarts, people like Mike Flanagan, who I think is really great, or like Ari Aster, who personally I don't like, but lots of people love. Mm-hmm. So good on you. Get down. Mm-hmm. Do your thing. Um, but, you know, John Carpenter comes from this 70s era where you had these sort of genre filmmakers who have either left filmmaking behind, people like Brian De Palma, or Wes Craven, who has passed away. And so what I think is interesting about John Carpenter is he still has a very public career, even though he's not making movies. He's actually touring as a musician. Yeah. But at 73, which is something he never thought he would do. But, I, you know, he's still sort of the face of this, mm-hmm. you know, whole... And when I say genre filmmaking, I mean, you know, like dark sci-fi, uh, horror, um, horror comedies, you know, that realm, special effects realm and... I think that I, I think it's really interesting that he's just one of the few that's because everybody else sort of moved off and into blockbuster. You know, right. this is a guy that is a contemporary of Spielberg and is a contemporary of George Lucas, is, right. is a contemporary of James Cameron, who even worked on Escape from New York. But these are all people that moved into the realm of making these huge, gigantic movies. And anytime John Carpenter tried to move there, they bombed. Flop. Flop, Tina. So I think he's a really fantastic, interesting director to talk about because i don't know he's the solely this legacy uh and almost every movie that he's made has been reappraised at some point and deemed so much better than it was received right when it initially came out and Even, i think that's a, a fascinating thing yeah and obviously like the legacy continues obviously we're in the middle of the new halloween trilogy which is not john carpenter's halloween but he is a executive he's an, producer. He's an executive producer and he did the music and he actually said in an interview he was going to do the thing that he normally does when he's a producer. Because he like... Produced, Get a paycheck, right? Yeah, he produced the remake of The Fog and he said the thing that he did for that was he showed up and said hello and left and accepted their check. And Jason Bloom came to him and pitched him on the on the new Halloween movies and he's like, yeah, yeah, fine. And Jason Bloom, he said, basically said to him... And you can get off your ass and help us do it if you want it to be a good film, or you can just collect a paycheck. Oh. And he was like, you know what? He's right. 
And he was like, okay, dad, stop yelling at me. <laughs> oh, I want to go on tour. Um, so yeah, he's, he's really fascinating. Plus also, and I do just want to point it out there for anybody who listens to other podcasts, when we were trying to come up with a good subject to do for Halloween, it just seemed like no one else was talking about John Carpenter no at all. No one does. Not a very popular film podcast that is breaking down each of his movies one by one, week after week, with a celebrity guest, oh. maybe two people that I used to play trivia with. <laughs> no one's doing it. and uh, so crazy. And so we're just here to really fill that void with this one episode. You're welcome. Yeah. And I know that's what you're saying out there. So, you know, you're saying thank you. And we just want you to know you're welcome. <laughs> so, Gavin, uh, why don't we get into the rewind? Absolutely. John Howard Carpenter was born January 16th, 1948, making him 73 years old. He was born in Carthage, New York, and he's the son of Milton Jean and Howard Ralph Carpenter, who is a music professor. Um, Howard Ralph Carpenter moved them almost immediately to Bowling Green, Kentucky um, in 1953. And he moved us down to Bowling Green, Kentucky, right in the middle of the Bible Belt. So you're talking about fundamentalist Christians surrounding this kind of intellectual. And I think that every time I would wake up or be with my parents, I'd be listening to classical music. My father would teach me to play the, the piano and the violin, and I'd walk outside, and it was a whole different world. And I wasn't sure where I belonged. My parents were Yankees from northern New York, so we were out of place in Bowling Green. And when I was growing up, it was Jim Crow south so it was pretty rough it's interesting listening to john carpenter talk about his family life he said you know his dad taught him music his mother taught him storytelling and it's funny because i've heard him say that a couple different times but i watched a recent interview where a interviewer pushed him on and like oh storytelling blah blah and he was like yeah she was mentally ill huh <laughs> so i was like Oh, okay. He's like, if you want to fucking hear me talk about it. <laughs> I've actually seen the house that he grew up in. in it's Bowling a log cabin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And currently resides like sort of in the middle of the highway. Um, but I didn't get a chance to go in or visit because we drove by it. I like listen. There's a show. Like, what is it called? Like Unmasking Halloween on The Ringer. Yes. I listened to it, but years ago. So. I listened to like one and a half episodes. It's good. Um, if you have time. Go check it out. Um, but like what they were saying or they reported was that like they looked different than the people who were born there. Like, you know, they had yeah. long hair, darker hair. Um, he said that like we had big noses. They were like just different looking people than the people who were born in Bowling Green. And on top of that, they had different values. Um, and that was where like kind of and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the vision of like Yes, there is evil out there, but it is us, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> like, we are the evil. Absolutely. He ends up being interested in film from a very early age, and he starts becoming, you know, sort of fanatic about certain directors. He really loves the the westerns of Howard Hawks, of John Ford, these people who really worked within the Hollywood studio system that we now revere as sort of the masters. Uh, and he remembers seeing the 1950s low-budget the thing from another world and it it like terrifying him as a kid um that'll come back <laughs> uh and so he ends up making you know horror short films on eight millimeter film before even uh getting into high school my father didn't want to take eight millimeter movie camera pictures anymore project them he didn't care about that he got into stills 
So I said, you take this. So I took, I took his movie camera and shot little films around my house with my friends. And I learned some valuable things. I learned some editing things and stop motion, but thank God no one's ever gonna see these things. <laughs> I'd direct my friends to come into the shot, I'd stop the camera, I'd turn around, show a monster or something, then I'd turn back and have the friend react. My father said, look, you know what, this, this is editing. This is an editing machine. You just go click and you can cut the film. And I realized, oh, I can have my friend come all the way in, do his whole, re see the monster, do his whole reaction, run out. Then later on, turn around and shoot the monster. So it was a good education. He attends Western Kentucky University, uh, where his father was the chair of the music department. And then he ends up transferring out to University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts during 1968. And that, he said, you know, the film department was put in the same building as the horse stable. Right, right. So it was sort of a lawless, free <laughs> land. But he says, you know, they taught you everything there. You had to learn everything. Imagining it gets him and the horse girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, um, I mean, if that's not a villain origin story, I don't know what it Hello. is. And, you know, you learn sound, you learn cinematography, you learn editing, you learn directing and he said he thought he was pretty good at all of it except for sound uh but he eventually ends up dropping out so he can direct his first feature film you know small potatoes right um <laughs> he like moved to california like with some of his buddies from kentucky right yes like, and these are people that i and we'll see this throughout his career he works with the buds like yeah. they're the, you, the boys in the band, they're yeah. in the band. He finds people he likes, and he continues working with them ad infinitum. Yeah, that's truly. Uh, which I love. I love a person who's loyal. Um, he does an eight-minute short while he's still in college in 1969 called Captain Voyeur. You can watch it now on YouTube. It's fine. It's an eight-minute student film, but you can see some of the techniques that he eventually ends up using in Halloween. The next year, he ends up collaborating with producer John Loggenecker. Uh, he co-writes, edits, and does the music for this film called Resurrection of Bronco Billy. It wins the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film, but also it's not, it doesn't really go anywhere. Well, it's wild. I mean, know? like, I don't know, I don't, I truly don't know what, like, happens now if you win, like, Best Oscar for Live Action Short. I imagine, like, it'll be easier for you to get, like, a Netflix deal, perhaps. <laughs> Back then, I truly have no fucking idea. And it's funny, because like, Universal did buy it for, uh, you know, a theatrical release to play it as a short in front of movies, and they did it for two years, but, like, huh. no one talks about it. Right, so, no one give a fuck. His first major film as a director is Dark Star from 1974. It's a science fiction comedy that he co-writes with Dan O'Bannon, who would later go on to write Alien, and, like, famously, probably, like, apocryphal, says, you know, he went to a screening of Dark Star and nobody was laughing, and he said to himself, if I can't make them laugh, I'll make them scream! Okay. <laughs> um, do, do we think that Dark Star is funny? I think it's got funny moments. I think it's got a very, like, slackers sort of... Yes, yeah. I was like, I think it's a stoner movie, but yeah. I don't know that it's, like, a funny movie... For me, I just remember the most, it's like, the Phoenix asteroids, I'm floating, and I was like, okay, you're being one with space, I get, like, I don't remember a lot of funny moments, like, they're arguing with machines a lot. I mean, did you not find the beach ball alien hilarious? Because I kind of did. <laughs> nah. The thing that I most find interesting about this is, like, literally the 
beach ball alien is played by his friend who came with him to LA. Yes. Nick Castle, who eventually goes on to be the original Michael Myers. The- My favorite part of that movie, just last thing, is the song. Yes. <laughs> the song that, the, that begins and it closes. It's so good. And, and it was written for the movie. Yeah, so. it's great. It's great. The, uh, What's funny is, is like that was originally done sort of as a student film, and it was bought by a studio, and they gave them more money because they were like, make it longer, and that's when they added in the beach ball alien stuff and whatnot. And Dan O'Bannon said that it went from being a really great looking student film, like a professional looking student film, to being a bad looking professional movie. Yeah, yeah it, it's very yeah. the Holly Hobby, Hokey Pokey. Very, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go back to Party City. Yeah, yeah. Carpenter ends up doing the musical score as well as writing, producing, and directing. Dan O'Ban acted in the film and did the special effects, which actually ends up getting him hired to work on Star Wars. Just a little film. I don't wow. know if you guys ever heard of it. Um, doesn't really go anywhere. No one's ever heard of it. I love indie cinema. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His next film was Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976. It's a a low-budget thriller that's, uh, you know, influenced by a lot of Howard Hawks' Western Rio Bravo's, like, the main sort of influence in that movie. And Carpenter, once again, totally multitasking. Uh, He wrote it, he directed it, he scored it, he also edited the film using the pseudonym John T. Chance, which is actually John Wayne's character from Rio Bravo. Lol. And... You know, he considers it his first real film because it was like the first time things were scheduled and they were like, we have to shoot this now and we have this set during this Is time. Is that John Carpenter's Assault on Priest no. no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that comes with Halloween, right? Yes. Okay. It's also the first time that he works with Deborah Hill, who like is the biggest collaboration of his entire life. I know. Yeah, she's really great. I said I know in a kind of sad way because I just found out that, like, I thought they were still together, but, like, they broke up very early in their career. Oh, Deborah, yeah, I mean, she's dead. Well, yeah, okay. Not like, like, yes. I was listening to that podcast about Halloween, and he was like, and then he fell in love with someone else, and I was like, damn, boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Assault on Precinct 13, I... LOL'd at the little girl getting shot. Which is funny because it was very controversial for a long time. A lot of people thought that that was like too much crossing a line. And I'll admit, sometimes when I'm watching a horror movie and a child gets menaced, I am not into it. But that is like so clearly like darkly comic. But also then one of our um, listeners, followers was like, that is literally Kim Richards. Yes. Of... I, and I have no idea about these people. Oh, I don't. Do, I don't do Housewives either. But like, no. But like, here's the thing. She's like, also like Paris Hilton's aunt? aunt. Yeah, yeah. Paris Hilton's aunt, but also at the time was a pretty famous child actor. Yeah. Um. And so I was like, fuck. I'm like blind in both of these areas. I didn't know that she was a famous fucking kid actor in a lot of these movies, and I didn't fucking know she's a housewife. Just a little quick tidbit, you know, the, the housewives gals, um, they're they, they're horrific. Hello. <laughs> Um, what did you think about Assault the Prisoner Team? I had seen it before. Funny enough, I had seen it before as, like, maybe young film student and kind of been like, ugh, whatever, like, exploitation movie. I'd been seeing a lot of them in that time period. And I and I was like, oh, I don't really love this. And I rewatched it for this and I was a little shocked at how... Why? Or what made you think that... Or I'm surprised to hear you, like, say exploitation film. Was it because of the, like... Bad guys who were, like, trying to yeah, take it, over the... Because it, it felt very, like... I think during that time period, I'd seen things like The Warriors and yeah. and thing, things where, like, it's a lot of, like, oh, this inner city crime. The undesirables. Like, yeah, exactly. Because it's not nihilistic in a way that... I'll, like, nihilism turns me off. Mm-hmm. Like, I hate nihilistic horror. 
And that's part of my problem with Ari Aster is that I find his films like come from a very like I hate humanity sort yeah. of place, and I'm like I get it, but also like I live it. So yeah. Like, <laughs> so film, what are we gonna do? Yeah, the film is escapism <laughs> for me. Thank you. But I think at the time I felt it was really nihilistic, and maybe it was things like killing the child, and maybe it was you know things like the odd treatment of the like people die in that movie, and it's almost like. Not a big deal. Like, and it, I feel like that's where he's, like, really working his writing chops because he's like, I want you to care about these characters. These other ones don't matter. And I feel like later on he's like, oh, shit, no, you should kind of care about everybody. Right. That way. It's interesting because, like, I was like, oh, there's some social commentary here. Right. But it feels, at least to me, and I, I watched it once in this marathon of us watching all these movies, and so I may be missing something, but... I was like, in the end, I was like, wait, what the fuck are we saying? Like, because later in his movies, it often feels like he's taking the, quote, undesirables and, like, they are the champions of the movie. They are the ones who are like, this life sucks. But in this movie, he's placing the uh, protagonist in this black sheriff character and they're, like, protect... Like, it's literally protecting the, the police and, like, the way that they run things. And so, to me, I was like... Wait, what is he saying here? Like, yeah. I, it feels a I, little bit. It kind not, of like sounds like all lives matter type shit to me. Yes, and yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. what is going on? Because it's like these prisoners we need to protect because we need to treat them badly, and it can't be these other <laughs> <Yeah>. folks. <laughs> and so we're the only ones who can. Yeah, do that. yeah. And I can see that. I can and see it, what and you're it's, saying. It's so, so. And again, I'm sure there's been a lot more scholarship on this movie, but yeah. like in the end, I was just like, what. Now what? Power failure? The streetlights are still on. I'll call Ellendale on the two-way in my car. (laughs) Cheney just fell down. He didn't fall. He was shot. What? But there wasn't any sound. Silences. They're using silences. See, all to say, I think the movie's a little, like weird not super clear as as we go on like at the peak of his career he's very clear about like his social commentary yeah and i think it's like very i I think there's only one other area that it gets really muddled and we'll get to it yeah yeah um but they did a remake of this movie right they did uh with ethan hawk i've never seen the remake ever um i'm sure it's a thing that happened there you go that that was one of the movies he said that like they gave him a nice check, and so... He's like, I love these types of remakes. <laughs> I do want to say that, like, he made it look <laughs> like a real movie. Like, it's a very low budget, you know? It is... It, it, it's, like, literally stretching every dollar, and that movie looks so, so good. Part of the reason why the movie looks the way it does is because, barring Dark Star and his final film, The Ward... Everything that he's ever shot was in anamorphic uh, 235, 1 or greater aspect ratio. And he says that. Of course, of course. Th- 35 millimeter Panavision anamorphic format is the best movie system there is. And pre- he prefers it both to like 3D or or digital. That means something to somebody, Louis. How dare you? How no, dare no, you stare at me like I I love anamorphics. <laughs> also, they were my favorite. I was um, going to say. Adult novels I was going to say, you've read all those books. Yeah. You read yeah, all yeah. <laughs> 
The ones where they uh, all the teens turned into cameras. You know what, bitch? I have read all those books, so don't <laughs> come at me. The next thing Carpenter does is he writes and directs a Lauren Hutton thriller, Someone's Watching Me, which is a TV movie. And it's a television film about a single woman um, who's being stalked in L.A. and no one will believe her except for her, which is very cool, um, lesbian assistant played by Adrian Barbeau. Okay. Yeah. It's way ahead of its time because it's literally about men not believing a woman when they should, when she's like, I'm being stalked, please do something about it. And it's got very modern, you know, things like she meets Adrian Barbeau and Adrian Barbeau like casually slips in. She's a lesbian and she's like, don't worry, you're not my type. And that's it. Like, that's fine. And nobody has, and nobody's like judgy about it or anything. And I really liked this movie, and it's stylish, and it's sleek, and I think it's maybe the thing that made him realize that, like, killing adults isn't as much fun as killing teens. Okay. <laughs> so, like, because adults adults are, like, complicated. Yeah. Adults suck. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, but I, it was considered a lost film for a long time, but it's, it's no longer, it came out on DVD, and... I highly recommend seeing it. it okay. I don't think Lauren Hutton's ever been better. I love Lauren Hutton in this movie. There's a great moment where she comes home at one point after the police are like, really are like, you gotta stop bothering us. And she hears the shower running and she like walks into the bathroom and the room is just filled with steam and written on the mirror is like, nobody believes you. And That's I was just, scary fucking shit. And I was just like, <gasps> I was like, good for you, Carpenter, <laughs> getting those scares yeah. in early on. Um, he also sells a script called Eyes, which eventually turns into the 1978 thriller Eyes of Laura Mars featuring Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones. I also recently just watched this, not for this episode, but I just wanted to see it. Um, and it technically becomes Carpenter's first major studio film of his career. And he has said several times, if you want to break into the film industry, write a script so good, they're willing to pay you a ton of money for it. And then... Oh, is that all? Write a great screenplay that every studio must have now, must have right now. Sell it for a lot of money, okay? Make a lot of money, then write another one that they must have. And then you say, ah, 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 I direct this one. That's how you get it. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Is that what happened with Halloween? So that leads to 1978's Halloween. It was a huge commercial success. It starts the slasher genre, essentially, and Originally, it was this idea suggested to him by producer Erwin Yablins. Great name. Yeah. It was called The Babysitter Murders. And he was just like, let's do a movie about a guy killing a bunch of babysitters. And uh, Carpenter was like, okay. But let's make him a child. (laughs) And Yablins was like, let's put it on Halloween. And Carpenter was like, cool. Nobody's nobody's really done that before. But Carpenter, to, to his mindset is like, I'm just going to make this exploitation movie. He still refers to it just as an exploitation movie. Wow. He's like, yeah, it's just a movie where a bunch of teens get killed. He's like, I wanted to make it like a haunted house, like the kind of haunted houses I went to as a kid where you walk in a room and something pops out at you, which is so funny because a lot of the scares and a lot of the things that are in this movie are much more subtle, I think, than what eventually comes after. Right. It's like people took that template and were like, no, just every three seconds have yeah, something pop yeah. out. Um, also, there was a, a bit of controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bob Clark had made this film called Black Christmas in 1974, 
Carpenter and Clark were actually working on another film after that. This is according to Bob Clark. And I want to say this is really cool of Bob Clark because for years I'd always heard he stole Bob Clark's idea and made Halloween and now people give it all the credit. But Bob Clark and Carpenter were working together and Carpenter was like, are you going to make a sequel to Black Christmas? Bob Clark was like, no, I don't want to be a horror movie director anymore. And Carpenter was like, well, here's an idea for a sequel. And he basically like like regurgitated the plot of Halloween. And so Bob Clark was like, he didn't steal my idea. Like he had the idea. It was all there. Right. Like maybe there's some inspiration about a killer stalking people, but like, that's not, that's not the same thing as like taking someone's idea. So cool. Bob Clark to set the record straight. He did that in 2005. I believe he's since passed. Uh, Also, what a fucking weird career. Bob Clark, Bob Clark, who went on to direct Christmas story and, uh, baby geniuses. So Ooh, casual. He's like, I don't want to do horror. I just yeah. want babies to be talking. Exactly. I want to do porkies, um, <laughs> which is also something he directed. Uh, Halloween is written by Carpenter and Deborah Hill with uh, Carpenter doing the music as well, which he says he like slightly stole from Dero Suspiria and also took bits from the exorcist, but wholly original. And it's his idea. He says like, you know, when people ask him about like the synthesizer and stuff, because he's known for that. I mean, that yeah. the Halloween theme is like what he's known for. And he was like, listen, people were using synthesizers before I was. Yeah. Um, it literally just came down to finances. Right. And, like, and like famously, Wendy Carlos, who wrote like a bunch of the music for Kubrick between, you know, 2001 with all the classical covers and, and Clockwork Orange, you know, so He's not the first. Tangerine and, Dream was yeah. the, did the score to Sorcerer, like, and he's been very like vocal. He's like, I didn't invent synthesizers. Yeah. It just so happens that that he's, like melody has become so popular, yeah. and it broke through into the pop and the culture. Like, you know, there are movie music and song, especially when it's just literally like a little melody. It's like what three fucking notes? Like, yeah, it's it's and, it, and it's so popular. And also, he ended up using like bongo rhythms for for mm. the like background but played on the synthesizer so like that's it's that tempo that that like fast tempo that keeps it going um the movie is made for three hundred thousand dollars which is nothing it grosses 65 million which makes it one of the most successful independent films of all time um did i hear right that he they said if you can make the movie for three hundred thousand dollars we will call it john carpenter's halloween and thus is born his right. whole thing. Well, and that's and that's sort of what, you know, he becomes famous for because after Halloween, it'll, it opens him up to being sort of uncompromising if he doesn't have to be. You know, his big thing is that he gets final cut on his movies. Mm-hmm. The movies that he makes are what you see in the end are what he wanted you to see. Right. And, and the studios couldn't interfere with that. And that, that impresses me. And that's why he put his name above the title's as well as as a tribute to all the filmmakers that came before him that you know it used to, you used to see like John Hawks Rio Bravo or like Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo or you know and, and Orson Welles's Chimes at Midnight and he's not necessarily putting himself on a pedestal with them but what he's saying is like well if they did it I can do it too right it's an homage and also like this is my vision right and for better or worse and let me tell you, honey, as we get through time, there are some that are not better. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get John Carpenter's on, out of Halloween for because I basically did that movie for no money. So I said, look, 
look, I'm not going to charge anything, but you've got to let me have final cut, and you've got to let me put John Carpenter's on it. Because I wanted to, you know, have my name on it. And uh, <laughs> movies are collaborative, man. I mean, you know, I don't walk in and say, you do this here and put the camera there. I mean, it doesn't work that way. But Halloween, as most people know, is a film about Michael Myers, who is a young child who stabs his sister to death and then goes into a psychiatric institution and years later comes out on Halloween night and begins stalking the babysitters of Haddonfield. That's the original pitch. No sister, no, you know, that's that that stuff comes later when you start getting into the mess of sequels and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Excuse me, Lori. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Yes, sir. Nice seeing you, sir. In 79, he begins his first collaboration with Kurt Russell ever. He does the television movie Elvis. Right. Which is about three hours without commercials. You're um, fucking kidding me. Three hours? Yeah, yeah. Cause, well, because it's a mi- it's like a uh... quote-unquote miniseries. I, for the most part, liked it. I do think it's funny that the producers hired him because they heard that he wrote the music to Halloween and were like, oh, he could work with a musician. Like, he could... They, they like had no idea that Halloween was going to be so big. That's why he had signed yeah. on to do Elvis, right? Yeah. So I can only imagine he's like, oh, fuck, I just made $65 million and now I got to make this... Well, because the first reviews that came out for Halloween were terrible, and then it got pulled and re-released, and everybody re-reviewed it and was like, it's great. And he said, suddenly three weeks into shooting Elvis, all these studio execs started showing up to the set, to the shooting of it, and were like, hey, what are you, like, oh, what are you shooting here? And um, I do like that this is how he meets Kurt Russell. He has said several times he really likes Kurt Russell because... His best friend, Kurt Russell. (laughs) Um, He really likes Kurt Russell because he was... Disney trained. Right. Which means, you know, he showed up on set. He knew all his lines. He knew what he was doing. And it's, he said, it's this very old school. He said the only time he really ever experienced that was Bridges on Starman as well. Mm. And so I think that's really fascinating that he's like, he likes a hard worker. He likes somebody who's come in and already started doing the work. And so it, it doesn't make his life more difficult. Also, Jeff Bridges, Kurt Russell, the same person. (laughs) <laughs> but like truly both handsome you know they were at their prime i would say like then yeah right? like jeff bridges gorgeous gorgeous yeah, yeah kurt russell hot gorgeous hot hot so basically he's like i can make whatever i want and the next thing he decides to make is a small ghost story called the fog uh in 1980 he and hill co-write this movie and it's based off of like old EC comic tales from the crypt and this movie called the crawling eye about a monster that like lives in a cloud. And he found working on this movie sort of unusually difficult because he realized after the first screening that it just wasn't scary. And so they went back and uh, reshot a bunch of stuff. That was a troubled film. We had to recut it and reshoot and it didn't, it didn't work the first time we finished it. I said, this is not scary. In the old days, they used to give you insert days. Mm-hmm. So they give you one day after it's all over. They pay for it, and you can come in and f- shoot stuff to fix what you've done and value that time, value that, because that can change a lot of things. You can make a scene that's slow, pop a little, if you have something going on right in the middle. Yeah. Just take the attention away from it. 
I think this is like the first movie where we actually see like some of like the grosser stuff that we will come to see, which is funny, right? Because, because I mean, there are there's there's stuff that happens in it. There's like gross thing. There's no blood in the movie. Hmm. There's never any blood. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, they're just like kind of soggy, gross pirate. Yeah, guys, right. Um, the plot of the fog is. It's the 100th anniversary of this town, Antonio Bay, and this eerie fog rolls in and it's carrying the ghosts of leprous pirates who were wronged by six people, six conspirators in this town to steal their gold. Mm-hmm. And they're basically here to kill six fuckers. Yes. And it's funny because it's like a very haunted housey type movie very strange lots of strange occurrences that's what i think i like the most about it is there's lots of odd things that happen on the lead up like the the gold coin that turns into like the a, driftwood i like all these like odd occurrences i like when things are a little less explainable and a little more just like oh there's some real dark magic here what i'll tell you is there is a, a really hard-working fog machine okay oh yeah the- several and it's funny because the you know they actually spent um uh more money on the advertising of the fog than they spent on making it because they would actually sometimes even ship fog machines to theaters that's nuts yeah that's nuts um and i what what a good little gag that's a uh, gag it's funny i saw it a couple years ago at brooklyn academy of music on maybe the worst print i've ever seen a movie oh. on like just real damaged and it's funny cuz when how holbrook realizes why they're there how holbrook plays the priest in the film mm-hmm. who's trying to and by the way um a, like amazing cast jamie lee back again yeah jamie lee back and her mother janet lee hal holbrook adrian barbeau tom atkins so just sort of a murderer's row of like um people who either become john carpenter staples or people who are already john carpenter staples including his then wife adrian barbeau who he met on the set of Somebody, someone's watching me. When Hal Holbrook discovers why these leprous pirates are coming for their revenge, the film broke and everything went black huh. in the theater. And I was like, I like leaned over to my friend Ross and was like, now would be a good time for them to start a fog machine. Uh-huh. I was like, that, that was, and that was the true gag. And then the pirates started walking yes. in. Um, sadly... No pirates? No pirates. Didn't happen. Um, the film was made for a budget of $1 million, but grossed $21 million in the United States alone. Uh, Carpenter himself has said The Fog is not his favorite film, but he considers it a minor horror classic. I liked it. Yeah. Just just, just a minor horror classic. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing he does in 81 is he moves a, a little further out of horror, and he moves into the science fiction genre. He does Escape from New York. Kurt Russell is back. Donald Pleasance is back. Adrian Barbeau is back. Tom Atkins is back. You know, it's it's literally all these people. This is the first film with Harry Dean Stanton, who will pop up again. Uh, and then, like, Lee Van Cleef and Ernest Borgnine are in this movie. And it was a big commercial success, grossing more than $25 million and critical acclaim. It's this movie about this criminal named Snake Plissken. I'm sure you've heard that name before at some point <laughs> in your life. Uh, one of the most famous roles Kurt Russell ever plays. He's an eye-patched criminal, and he's been dispatched into New York City, which has been turned into one, prison. Yeah, one giant prison. And he's sent there in order to save the president, 
who's crashed his yeah his plane was hijacked and they sent him on like a uh escape pod into new york uh and snake plissken's job is to get him out within 24 hours or he'll die right yeah and so snake has to get in and get out and it's it's basically a long chase scene you know it's yeah in a way it is its own road movie and he's traversing this like not post-apocalyptic but close enough post-apocalyptic new york which is you know the only like it's a prison island filled with only criminals but it's like a prison island but like they're like do whatever you want in there we don't give a fuck like it's yeah it's lawless yeah um uh, and so there's a bunch of like kooky books hanging around and my favorite was the the cab driver guy ernest borgnine yeah. yeah he's real great in it too and it's i mean there's <laughs> that movie is a wild um, I've seen that movie so many times. My dad loved that movie. I love that they also have like their little gladiator arena. Yep. Where like they're just like let's let's have like sports, but dying. <laughs> uh, apparently, the the so there is a fight scene between Snake Plissken and a real wrestler. Yes. And apparently, during the fight scene, the wrestler just kept getting more and more rough, and finally, <sighs> Kurt Russell had to tap him on the genitals <sighs> to tell him like. Relax. Relax. Like, it's fake. Like, you know that thing when you tap someone on the genitals? Yeah, to let that's, them know? How, that's how you let them know. Yeah. That's how, you, that's how we, that's, you Yes. Know. Hey, relax. Yeah. <laughs> we as gay people get to choose who we tap on the genitals. Thank you. <laughs> it's finally your turn to breathe, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And that's Love, Simon. And that's Love, Simon. Escape from Love, Simon. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, what did you think? I'm curious, what did you think of Escape I'd never Man? seen it before. Yeah. Um, I honestly only... I'd seen Snake um, before. There's a pizza place in San Francisco called Escape from New York Pizza. That's what, that was my closest connection to it. Um, but, yeah. What, was the, like, pizza <laughs> toppings, like, cigarette butts and needles? <laughs> like... That was my favorite combo number one. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was like kind of like, uh, again, a little bit. I was like, okay, they've made the leader because the Duke. Right? Yes. Played by Isaac Hayes. I, yes. Um, I don't know. I don't think that I'm like as enamored with it as everyone else is. I think it's like a slick looking movie. Yeah. I think it's really stylish. Um, certainly a lot of like one linery type like bad. Here's my thing. I think a lot of these movies, I'm like, John Carpenter is like just a boy playing with toys. Like they're so, um, I don't want to say juvenile, but like a lot of it is like, this looks fucking cool. Let's do this. Like he's just playing, yeah. you know? And it's like, I can see what you're saying. It's, it's very, um, but it's also kind of innocent. There's, it's just like, there is no rhyme or reason. This just looks fucking cool. Um, they're, they're like, we're going to land a plane on the Twin Towers. Well, they're like, like it, it's just like all when they realize they're like, whoa, it's so cool, you know? Um, and But I will say, like, it seems like he has an idea. And a lot of his movies are like this where it's like there, there needs to be some sacrifice. There needs to be like something in the end where it's like, I'm actually not just a good guy, but like right. I have a conscious or like a moral compass. And so even though Snake is quote a bad guy he is a criminal in the end he's like fuck this tape and fuck the united states yeah credits uh so i think it's it looks and feels like to me a very formative again like all these 
earlier works to me feel like building blocks to like what is to come where he really gets in his groove um because i think i am a little cooler on these earlier things interesting but which is funny because these are sort of the things that make him i know that people yeah, love yeah, yeah but i but i also wonder if there's like just a cultural thing like when you i mean i understand why if if you saw halloween when it came out and it was there's nothing out there like it yeah kind of same thing with this movie like there is not a lot of um stuff like this out there yeah and it's, so and it's interesting because there there are a lot of things that he ends up pioneering like i, I mentioned james cameron worked on the film you know they helped do the like cityscape during the like him flying through and what's interesting is literally what that is is because it would have been too expensive to animate is they took a model of the city and spray painted it black and then covered all the edges of the building with tape huh. and so that's literally just a camera flowing through like so it looks like a grid right and you know that's really smart but then james cameron takes that sort of knowledge and goes on to make like alien or like the parts of the models were end up used in blade runner you know right, Ridley Scott's. Right. so like he is sort of pioneering these ideas that that other people then take and run with and and become like Cinema classics. Right, right, for sure. Well, Snake Plissken, all right. What you doing in here with a gun, Snake? Looking for somebody. Who? The president. Come on. He really here? Somewhere. His next film, 1982's The Thing, uh, huge production values, innovative special effects by Rob Botton, visual effects uh, by mad artist Albert Whitlock, and... Ennio Marcone does the score, which is funny because I remember him saying, like, he's like, yeah, I love doing the music. But if someone, like, if Ennio Marcone comes to me and is like, I'm doing the score, I'm like, yeah, you are. Like, I'll step aside. I think th- I will say that there are some times where I think when he does the music, it's a miss for me. <laughs> I'm like, OK, we get it. Like, synthesizer, ding, ding, yes. ding, ding, ding. Like, I get it. I would say the thing is disgusting, but I think it's one of his most successful movies to me. Yeah. Like, and I don't mean like money making wise. I think it like it really works. I was like, this is horrible. I yeah. hate like watching this, but it it sticks the landing. It's I, I knew it would be a little ooey gooey for you. It's and, you know. and it's it's supremely ooey gooey. Like it is. I I had I was looking away. It's so graphic. It is so disgusting. Um, and again, that's why I was like, God, he's such a fucking child. Like this is just like, what if we make like the head? Oh, I was telling Derek I was like I hate the thing where it's like angry mouth inside of another angry mouth <laughs> yeah I hate that so much um and he loves it <laughs> um I mean I do too I'm with Derek on this one uh the the thing is a remake of uh Howard Hawks film the thing from another world as I mentioned he saw it as a child and it scared him to death uh, but it's actually more faithful to the novella it's based on who goes there by John W Campbell and it's really about the you know these men trapped in this Arctic's research space. These men played by Wilford Brimley, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Keith David, Richard Masseur, and Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. And they're all, you know, this alien thing escapes and it can basically take over people's bodies and turn them into grotesque monsters one by one as it passes through each person. So it's supreme paranoia as they're trying to figure out like what the fuck's going on? What killed everybody? 
and how they can destroy this thing before it gets out of this Arctic base and right. takes over the world. Right. It's very classic, like, it's Lilo and Stitch, <laughs> where the alien lands and it's like, oh, fuck, of all places to land, they're, they land in the Arctic. And those fucking, what, like, Norwegian people blow it up and now she's alive and a little husky baby is carrying the disease. Ugh. I, I, I really liked it. It's... Um, who who is the final guy with Kurt Russell? Keith David. I think they're so good. He's really good. Yeah, um, I love Keith David. And they, again, like these movies, it's ridiculous. It's horrible, horrifying. But in the end, it's about these two guys looking at each other. They don't trust each other because one of them could be infected. One of them could be an alien. And, but they just have like this understanding, like, they're like, oh, well... This whole place is on fire, but it won't be on fire for long. Right. And we're going to either freeze or you're going to kill me or I'm going to kill you. you. Yeah. yeah. And And there's no good ending here. No. But it will end. Yeah. And it's just like kind of like, this was the first movie that I saw. I was like, I think the social commentary is spot on. Yeah. The paranoia of like each other, what happens when like we're in crisis and you know, that these guys who are isolated, obviously, but like. In theory, they should be a team. They were they're in Antarctica. They're not trapped there. They were they're working. Right. They're just trapped there because they're in fucking Antarctica. But they don't act like a team. They don't act they they are acting like they fucking just found this crazy alien and it's like taking them each over uh one by one. And um I I I love the interpersonal dynamics yeah. of everyone in this movie and and how they have to, or they don't learn how to work with each other. Um, yeah, so this movie worked really well for me, even I mean, though it's disgusting. It contains one of my favorite lines in it, which is like, I don't want to spend winter taking yeah, to this yeah. fucking couch. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't mind, yeah. sirs. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very graphic, very sinister, very bleak. It forms the first part of his informal apocalypse trilogy, mm. which then is Prince of Darkness and uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Um, and it's a huge bomb. It's a huge failure, like financially, commercially. People are like, oh, it's so gross. Like, why all the special effects? And also, two weeks before it came out, E.T. comes out. Okay, well. And people are like, we like the friendly alien. They don't like the one that rips dogs in half? That's no. So crazy. <laughs> God, what was happening to him? If it had more time to finish, it would have looked and sounded and acted just like Benny's. I don't know what you're saying. That was one of those things out there, trying to imitate him, Gary. During the filming of the thing, uh, Universal was like, hey, would you do Stephen King's Firestarter? And he was like, sure. And they were like, oh, just kidding. This didn't do well. <laughs> and no one will hire him. And eventually, Universal is like, okay, we'll throw you a bone. Why don't you make the Stephen King movie about the, the car, the evil car? Yeah. Um, so in 1983, he does an adaptation of Stephen King's Christine. It's literally that. I don't even think we need to tell you any more of the plot. It's about a young teenage boy who's a nerd who buys a, a car and it's evil and it's it's Carrie, but the car is Carrie. Right. Um, it starts killing all the people he doesn't like. Um, it, it's got really great special effects. I, I really like his score, but it's a no for me, dog. I don't, I didn't rewatch it for this, 
I remember liking it for the Stephen King episode. Yeah, it's it's like it's fine. I it's like inoffensive. I would I would say I I think it's highly watchable. I think the car itself is interesting, and all the shots of like after the car is destroyed, yeah, like, coming back, yeah, yeah, is really cool. And they they really found an effective way to do that by like casting the car out of plastic and denting, like having it sucked in, dented, and then reversing the footage. I think that's really neat. I don't particularly love the lead guy. I think he's mm. kind of a wet blanket, even mm. when he's cool. bad, you know? Me and my fucking car. Yeah. My best friend car. <laughs> and I don't know. I just also don't really find, like, once again, spooky ooky, like, car can do other things other than run people over and burst into flames. But, like, I really don't feel like sitting in a car and choking on a hamburger is that scary to me. Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you've never been to a Sonic drive through <laughs> So yeah, so I mean, he needed a check. He yes. needed a win. And he and he has said, you know, um it was the only thing offered him at the time at the time and so he took it. Yeah. Um but I do really like the score. I will say that the Christine theme's great. Okay. There you go. Um 1984 Starman comes around. It's produced by Michael Douglas. Uh it's funny because he was offered both the script of uh Starman and ET at the same time and he turned down ET for Starman. Uh, Michael Douglas did, and Spielberg left and went to go make that elsewhere. Uh, and then Michael Douglas handpicked Carpenter. He knew he could direct action well. That's He knew he needed, like, romance and action. And so he really relied on him uh, for this. And Carpenter sort of saw this movie as being, like, it happened one night, but with space aliens. Yeah, Starman's a little kooky for me. Oh, is it? I like, I liked it. I, like I, was, it. I was shocked how much I liked it. I like it, but a part of me is, like, it's... It, for me, also feels kind of like in the stonery vibe of Dark Star, where it's this, like, alien grows up and falls in love, and, like, God, when he's like, I gave you a baby. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, kind of weird, right? There is something I must tell you. I gave you a baby tonight. It's impossible. I can't have a child. I've been to a doctor, a couple of them. Believe what I tell you. Hey, boy, baby. I like their chemistry, Karen Allen and, and Jeff Bridges. I, I think yeah. it's fun, and I, I like the special effects in it as well, too. The balls. Uh, the balls. <laughs> uh, you know, lo- love Jeff Bridges' balls. Yeah. Love him. Pendulous. It <laughs> uh, in a, in a brief detour, Ilya Salkine... Uh, who produced the Superman films, sees footage of Starman, and he's like, guys, I got this great script. It's called Santa Claus the Movie. Santa? Oh, the one with... Okay, yeah. yeah yep. Your one-star review from yeah. our Santa Claus on film. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. He goes to Carpenter. He's like, you would be great to make this movie. They have lunch at the Ritz. Psychotic, psychotic. Yeah. John Carpenter's like, I love the idea. Give me 24 hours. He comes back 24 hours and he says, these are my demands. <gasps> I want 100% of creative control, the right to assumed script writing duties, being able to compose the film's musical score, total editorial control, which he always gets, casting Brian Dennehy as Santa Claus, and $5 million to sign on, which is the same amount that they had offered Dudley Moore to star as the elf in the movie. And Selkine was like lol fuck off (laughs) what i love most about that story is that basically he was like this is my chance to write christmas music (laughs) 
and I am not passing it up. <laughs> exactly. And I'm making sure nobody cuts it out. Right, right. <laughs> like, he was like, this will be my Christmas rock opera. Um, I still sort of want to see that movie. <laughs> um, so he ends up doing Big Big Trouble in Little China next, actually, in 1986. And once again, reteaming Kurt Russell. Um, complicated. I know people probably want us to talk a lot about it. I, I don't know. I have no idea what your picks are or whatever. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not mine. Um, I have a lot of issues with it. I think it's fun. I did like reading about the idea that Carpenter was the one who came in and removed a lot of the racist jokes. Um, and he was the one that was like... And yet... <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was the one that was like, Jack Burton's not the star of the movie. He's the sidekick, but he doesn't know it. And like, but I also don't want to give him credit for being a white man going in and thinking he can fix the racist system because yeah. racism's so much bigger than that. Yeah. And that, so like, really the recourses just don't make the fucking movie. And also I think he failed to like realize that the problem with white people, I say this as a white person, Louis is not, so you don't have to agree with me, but I'm sure you do, which is that we are so stupid uh-huh. that we will look at the idiot on screen and be like, he's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Jack yeah. Burton, the yeah. coolest guy when he's just a big, dumb idiot. Like one of the most brilliant things that happened in the movie is the start of the big fight scene. He knocks himself out. Right. Right. That, that I will say it's not my pick either for anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it was very novel. Like the most novel thing about it is that the action lead of it is very bad at everything that he's yeah. like alleging to do, like wants to do. Like he thinks he is an action star and like, it's just like, you are a big dum dumb. Yeah. Um, but on the flip of that, it's like every casual Asian person in San Francisco knows Kung Fu. Right. Like literally like, and, and it's funny because it was like, um, like, it was a quote-unquote big-budget movie, but they couldn't do, like, the the wire foo of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So, like, it's clear that the actors are, like, bouncing off a trampoline yeah. or, like, jumping off something high at the start of a scene. Everything, they're, like, they, it's it's very B-list movie. Like, yeah. um, also, but at the same time, he did make sure to populate it with actual yes, Asian actors, yes. which I do appreciate. You know, Except but. for the fact that, like, this script calls for Kim Cattrall yes. to also be, like... Some like green eyed ooky spooky gal. I'm like, yeah. I was like, you can't even let the one Asian woman like <laughs> be the girl that they're all after. It's funny too because he like couldn't get them to agree to Kim Cattrall at first because once again, Porky's, uh, which we've talked about before that she had issues with getting cast after that. So, um, it's a, it's a, it's funny. I think it's more funny than anything, but also it's just like, my God. I, I, the whole time I was watching this, I was like, he's a boy. This is little boy things. Yeah, yeah. Like, it reminded me kind of like Mortal Kombat type stuff. Like, the imagery is very that. It feels very, like, exoticism. There's a a lot of Orientalism. There's a lot of, like, exposition of, like, explaining why the thing is in the mystical. And it's like, okay, uh uh-huh. Yeah, this just sounds like racist nonsense. It's not like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's... it's problematic it's yeah it's borderline inoffensive offensive yeah yeah i don't know it's that movie's always troubled me because i know people who love that movie and i'm like but why they're they're so like literally watch a fucking wuxia film like yeah yeah (laughs) 
Absolutely. Cash or charge? Oh, gosh. Cash, I guess. I mean, it's not deductible, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. O'Toole will take care of your needs. Boy, you know, I wish these were in color, because what I really am sort of in the mood for is a girl with green eyes. And price is no object, Mrs. O'Toole. Fresh off the boats the way I like them. The more exotic, the better. Chinese girls do not come with green eyes. Oh, Big Trouble in Little China Bomb. So 87, he goes back to low-budget films. He does Prince of Darkness, um, which is about... Um, the devil. The devil, which is goo living in a cylinder mm-hmm. buried under a church. And Same guy from... Donald Pleasance. Yes. Yeah. He's good. I fucking love Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's amazing. But there are two guys also who are also in this movie. So who's the older actor who's like the professor in... Victor Wong. Victor Wong, who's also, again, kind of just showing like he's... Yeah. Working with people. Dennis Dunn, who was also in Big Trouble Little China, shows up in this. Uh, But I do think that we, we both latched on to our standout, which was Jameson Parker. Oh my God. And his... A mustache. The mustache work is excellent in the yeah. film. There's a couple of like shirtless moments where I was like, "Father, <laughs> I um, I like Prince of Darkness. I appreciate a weird big swing. It's such a weird fucking so movie. Weird. Um, it reminds me of what was the ghost movies where they're like a professor wants to come to the house to oh, prove the haunting of Hell House. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If, to me, it felt very much like that, but it's like I'm a professor. And you have to come to this church where we have goo yeah. <laughs> to like learn oh, about it. By the way, the goo is an alien that is Satan. Yes. And he wants to um, save his father from the mirror dimension. Right. Like, and the church lied to us. Yeah. Evil the, isn't within. It's actually this goo. Yeah. Now, every particle has an antiparticle. It's mirror image. It's negative side. Maybe... This universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God. <laughs> the church lied to us because people would never have accepted aliens. Right, right. <laughs> we need to center humans <laughs> on and everything. Not everything is about you. <laughs> Sometimes there's alien goo. Yeah. And They Live, which is 1988, which is... All, both of these films are kind of not well received and they're very sort of cheaply made but they they have their purpose i like they live Mm -hmm. uh they they live was written it's funny because right before he did they live he like famously said he's not a political filmmaker and then like saw what was happening in the country fucking hated ronald reagan yeah and was like what if i made a movie where the villains were republicans yes well that's what i was gonna say I, i just watched my country turn to the right I couldn't believe it after all we'd been through. I couldn't believe it. Right, Reagan got elected. So anyway, uh, there was a scream against yuppies and, and greed and all that. The 80s uh, mythos. The bad guys were aliens, but they really were just kind of bankers, Republicans. They live as a, a movie about this out-of-work man played by Roddy Piper. Hello. Who he cast specifically because he looked like a real person. He didn't want, like, a movie star. And he was, he was a, a real person. My- <laughs> He like like a hard person. Okay, I was like when the shirt comes off, I was like, yeah. "Sir, <laughs> that is a wrestling man." Well, Carpenter was also a wrestling fan. There you go. So a wrestling man for a wrestling fan. Also, there's fully like a moment when they're fighting and like he's giving him a suplex. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So they live is a, a, about this out of work man who stumbles upon this alien conspiracy uh, through these glasses that he receives that allow him to see that aliens have not just infiltrated Earth. They've been slowly brainwashing humans into being more passive and being consumerist and and like keeping essentially what Republicans want, a docile Mm -hmm. society so they can control and police them better. Yeah. Famously, this movie has a six and a half minute fight scene, which Carpenter still thinks is hilarious, uh, between Roddy Piper and Keith David, once again reoccurring, where... Roddy Piper is just trying to get Keith David to, to wear put glasses on the glasses. Exactly. And, and it's literally he's wrestling him yes. like they are they punching and beat the shit out of each yeah. other. The ever loving shit out of each other. And I'm like, for the gla- for the Ray-Bans? <laughs> and but Keith David is like, no, I don't want to wear the glasses. You're not going to make me wear the glasses. And he's like, put on the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is accurate reenactment. We will now spend the next six Thank and you. a half minutes doing the fight. We realize podcasts is not a visual medium, so you'll just have to imagine. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do also want to say, by the way, uh, They Live has Meg Foster in it, who I genuinely think is one of the most beautiful women in in the 80s that just never got the big... She was always like a genre person. She was evil in from Masters of the Universe. Well, she's also evil in this movie, too. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, he was offered The Exorcist 3, and he met with William Peter Blatty, who had written the book that it's based on, and also wrote the original Exorcist, and they argued over the ending, so he didn't make the film. But William Peter Blatty did eventually go on to make the move, direct the movie himself, so maybe, you know, small blessings. Mm-hmm. And also, the ending of the movie sucks, so maybe Carpenter was right. <laughs> um, the next steps in his career is sort of, I would say, his, like return to Hollywood period in 92 you get memoirs of invisible man village of the damned in 95 and escape from LA in 96 we'll touch on all of them very briefly memoirs of invisible man is Chevy Chase Chevy Chase it's labeled a comedy I've never found it very funny I I like this movie a lot I but I will say I've never found it very funny I don't understand why I think it's like romance yeah like a, a romantic drama that's a little sad um, but it's about this man who accidentally gets turned invisible and sort of about the horrors of what it is to be invisible. Um, it, and that's what I like about it. And I can see why other people didn't gravitate towards it. But it's also big special effects feat. You know, yeah. the the invisible nature of Chevy Chase in the movie is really cool and very it technical. It oh, it up. absolutely does. But he... Uh, but like, it's when he t- tells Daryl Hannah in it at one point when he's like... If you can't see me, I don't exist. Yeah. It's like the saddest thing in the world. What's wild is like, she even says like, oh, like you can do all these fun things. Right. Invisible. And he's like, no. You know, I never realized how important it is to be seen, you know, acknowledged. You start questioning whether you exist at all. Oh, Nick. Guess I forgive you for standing me up. He doesn't go insane like Claude Rains in the original Invisible Man. And he doesn't, like... Become a predator like fucking Kevin Bacon. Yeah, in Hollow Man. Like, he just sort of is, like... It's I can't do anything. Yeah, it's not great. It's not... You know, he comes up with this scheme to, like, fraud the stock market. That's about it. Yeah, Like, (laughs) Village of the Damned. Village of the Damned. Kirstie Alley. Kirstie Alley. It's a remake of a, a 
the original village of the damned a town called midwich and everybody falls asleep i think for like a period of 10 hours and essentially it's an alien invasion they impregnate 10 people and essentially these these kids get carried to term because there's a weird dream sequence that convinces the mothers not to get an abortion which i was like <laughs> a dream ballet <laughs> i was like could we've spent a little more money on the dream sequence <laughs> maybe we didn't need the the body of the guy who died on the grill right right like, <laughs> no they needed that um and the kids are evil feel like and the kids all have wigs yes <laughs> okay they love their wigs they love a look yeah um the the kids are evil aliens who are unfeeling and they're there to sort of study the humans one assumes for maybe an invasion at some point yeah they can like mind control read your mind right exactly um like i said it's based off an earlier film and one of the reasons why they even want to remake it was in the earlier film you couldn't even say the word abortion you couldn't even say the word pregnant they sure did say abortion this time yeah this is the problem with this movie is there's a memory of a better film Mm. um i mean i think this movie is a lot of problems i think yeah well yeah like they're out of nowhere, he's like, ah, I can block their thoughts by thinking of a wall. I mean, that's very much like the original. Where I was just... like, what? I got that these babies could fucking make bitches put their hands in boiling waters and like out. And all of a sudden it's like, I thought of the ocean and they can't get in. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if these kids are as strong as they think they are. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, Kirstie Alley plays a, a government doctor who's the one who figured out they're aliens and blah, blah, blah it's it's stuff happens it's another movie that he says he took for a paycheck he needed the well like i think like this movie the memoirs of invisible man movie they feel like studio-y yeah they're like oh this is kind of spooky let's just get his like sensibility on a part of me is like do we not think like there's some universal execs who are like we need kirstie alley in this yeah you do not get to choose. Like, and there's, me, there's no way in 1995 Universal was going to let him get away with not putting Kirstie Alley in this movie. And and let me tell you, she's certainly doing something in that movie. Oh, she's Kirstie Alley yeah. about. Yeah, she is like, oh boy. I was. It was at that moment I was like, what, has Kirstie Alley ever been a good actor? It like, takes two. <laughs> um, and then the aforementioned Escape from LA in 96, which was really done under Kurt Russell's suggestion. He really wanted to play Snake Plissken again. I didn't watch this one. Oh, okay. It's a sequel. L.A. is now a prison. Um, he has to go in, save the president's daughter. He has nine hours because there's a experimental virus coursing through his veins. There's... They got him again? Yeah. They said, ha Yeah. Surprise. There's a, th- It's so funny because there's a lot of stuff that they do to cover for that. Like, at one point, he's like... Uh, which one of these guns are loaded and then like tries to shoot them and they're holograms and they're like we expected as much mr pliskin and a lot of it is uh, it's it's much more fun okay than the first movie and even carpenter has said he thinks in the grand scheme of things people will acknowledge it's a better movie mm. i don't know if that's necessarily the case it's definitely curbs a lot i mean because it is kind of a remake right even though it's a new movie there's issues i mean oh because you didn't watch it so i can't even really talk about pam greer's character oh pam greer Pammy? yeah she plays a character named who we're gonna see again later yeah she plays a character named hershey <gasps> who's a trans woman i already don't like it oh yeah. it got worse it got worse who they altered her voice so it's very deep and oh more things change more they stay the same huh carjack glad to see you're still packing my gun between your legs Hold on, honey. You owe me. 
bolted on me back in Cleveland. Hershey, you were in Cleveland? Oh, yeah. With me in Texas, Mike O'Shea, except you looked a little different in those days, Carjack. You get one thing straight, Plissken. I'm no longer Carjack Malone. I appreciate us promise the most drop-dead to die for number you ever laid that one eye. I don't give a fuck what you are. I want to know what the hell happened to you in Cleveland. I was away on urgent business. I got caught. You didn't. It doesn't feel like a cash grab because it's very clear that the everybody behind the movie wanted to make it mm. but it, they did apparently rely like there's a lot of really bad cg and whatnot and apparently that is because the company they hired to do the cg had never done computer graphics for a movie before i feel like that took a hard time for cg anyway like 96 yeah. they were like oh i learned a new program like yeah. and it's just i mean these are a wackadoodle cartoony like yeah. he rides a wave with peter fonda at one point that it's just like you guys could have did this in stop motion. More realistic. <laughs> but, you know, but my, I mean, one of my favorite things in it is Bruce Campbell plays the Surgeon General of L.A. with like massive like like prosthetics to look like a mannequin, essentially. And he he runs like the bad plastic surgery clinic where like everybody's <laughs> had so much plastic surgery, like their muscles are. They said, what is it something about L.A. that right. we could really. <laughs> it's funny because he said that, you know, he hates New York and that's why he was able to. But I really like I think Escape from L.A. is much meaner to L.A. than Escape <laughs> from New York is because even in Escape from New York, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's New York. That's New York. I see it. Um, he does the anthology film Body Bags with Toby Hooper, which was actually a failed TV pilot. Um, in the Mouth of Madness in '95 with Sam Neill, which is his the the one time he really makes a Lovecraftian horror movie. I think it's great. It's maybe not all successful. Um, it's about an insurance adjuster who goes looking for a lost author who's very, even though he's an H.P. Lovecraft type person, he's also very Stephen King. Hmm. He finds the fictional town this author has been writing about this whole time and slowly realizes that he's in the book. One, yeah son of kane's <sighs> book great special effects in that movie too just really it's funny because i've mentioned ari aster a couple times ari aster has said um it's his favorite john carpenter movie mm. and if that movie were made nowadays it would be a huge hit because it's what every indie horror movie director right. is making right um vampires in 1998 with james wood as the leader of a band of vampire hunters in league with the catholic church Boo. Yeah. Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis calls him up in 1998 to try and get him to do Halloween H2O. He says she's trying to get the band back together, as many people in the band as she possibly can. And he says, great, I'll do it. Give me 10 million. Jesus. And Mustafa Akkad was like, no. And he's like, that's what you owe me for the original Halloween. And he's like, fuck no. And doesn't do Halloween H2O. Um... Jamie Lee Curtis is like, so he said no. Yeah. <laughs> um, 2001, he does Ghosts of Mars, which is essentially just a remake of Assault on Precinct 13. It was originally written to be the third Snake Plissken film. Oh. Um, when Escape from L.A. bombs, they're like, uh, Snake Plissken's written out. Here's a new character named Desolation Jones. And the studio is like, cast Ice Cube. And he's like, I guess. I don't know. Um, See, that's what I'm talking about, though. Like, cast Kirstie Alley. It's 95. Yeah. Cast Ice Cube. It's 2001. Like, it feels like he is in a place where, because horror is so different now. Yeah. And like, he isn't really, I don't know. Like when I think of John Carpenter now, after watching all these movies, I don't even think he's like in the slasher game. I think he's like in the like disgusting, gross game. See, I don't think, I I don't think, I mean, I do think he, there is a, 
a part of him that does like the gross stuff. But I don't I don't think it's solely that. But I do like he I think that he likes showing you things that you've maybe never seen before in a movie. And sometimes that's pretty gross and, and gets yeah. really gross and weird. Yeah. And so for me, or I'm thinking about like this time period, like it's very rarely is he giving the chance to succeed, I right. think. Because these movies I'm like, why is he doing this? Or like it's clear that he's like doing this in service of someone else's vision yeah. or someone else's story. Uh, weird times for John. But Assault, uh, not Assault, but uh, Ghost of Mars is this film about um, this Mars colony where this prisoner, Desolation Jones, is being brought to. And suddenly they're under siege by these parasitic ghost aliens that um, are of Mars. It's funny because I, as much as I think, I think John Carpenter would consider himself a liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did see him say like he, the reason he never directed a Western is because in the nineties, there were all these liberal Westerns like dances with wolves and he's not interested in telling that story. And when I was watching ghost of Mars, I was like, so the bad guys are the indigenous. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And we're rooting for the, for the invaders. They're like, this is our home now. I was like, they literally say that in the movie. Yeah. Yes. I was like, okay. Also, the movie looks bad. The movie just looks bad. Yeah. That movie's a huge disaster. He starts to move away from directing. People start giving him checks. Salt on Precinct 13. The Fog get remade. Halloween. Rob Zombie's Halloween 1 and 2 get remade. You know, come out. Uh, He does a television show in 2005 called Masters of Horror on Showtime. He directs two episodes that are, uh, like, essentially mini films. Uh, He does one called Cigarette Burns, which I'm a huge fan of and really think is, like, one of the best things he directed in years. And then he does one called Pro-Life, which its heart was in the right place. Okay. Because it's about a, a woman who, like, comes in to try and get an abortion because she has a, like, child of Satan. That's And then, hey, like, when that happens. pro-life, hey, when that like, happens. pro-life terrorists come in and try and stop the abortion. And She's like, no, this is Satan. Yeah, she's like, guys. Um, I'm trying to abort Satan. Hello. Um, uh, in... 2010, he makes his final film, The Ward, John Carpenter's The Ward. It's the first film he shoots, he tries shooting differently. It's... Exists. Okay. Yeah. I did not get that far. I hate to say this, like, I made this film. I made a short film that has the exact same plot as this in college. It's not a new idea. I knew I was ripping it off at the time that I made it, like, you know, so it's just, it's one of those things where it's just like, He's uh, like, listen, yeah, just, you... I want to make some more music, guys. I'm really just like focusing on my music career right now. It's hard being a director, actor, um, musician. Um, over the years, there's been lots of projects that he's involved with that, you know, that, that don't come to fruition. He does some test footage for a Dark Child movie based off the comic book. And as you mentioned before, he finally gets involved in uh, the the new Halloween movies. I do want to mention, by the way, his involvement um, in the previous Halloween movies he actually writes the script for Halloween 2, and he's like, it's awful. Huh. Um, and, it, and so he even admits, he's like, I've already made this movie. Why would I Why would I do it again? Um, when they did Halloween 3 and they were trying something different, you know, he got involved in that one. And then they were like, nope, this was a disaster. So that's when he left the series was Halloween 3. But he never, he doesn't direct another one. So he has no involvement with Jason Takes Manhattan? <laughs> That's Friday the 13th. Oh, right. You know why it's on my mind? Because we got a story about it today in the paper. Ah. 
Um, in terms of his personal life, uh, he meets Adrian Barbeau on the set of the 78 film, Somebody's Watching Me, and they're married from January 1st, 79 to 1984. Um, Barbeau goes on to star in The Fog and Escape from New York while they're married, and they have one son, son together, John Cody Carpenter. Um, he has been married to producer Sandy King since 1990. Um, she produced all of his later films in the mouth of madness, village of the damn vampires, ghosts of Mars. And then she'd been involved in his earlier films, Starman, big trouble, little China, Prince of darkness. They live. He has a commercial pilots license. He says he loves helicopters. I wow. even saw an interview with him where somebody was like an audience question was like, I showed my girlfriend three movies and she said the only thing she got out of it was John Carpenter's love loves hel- helicopters. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, she's right. Wow. Um, but, uh... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, yep, there was a helicopter in the thing. Helicopter, <laughs> yep. Um, the other thing that he really loves is video games. He thinks video games are the future. It's fabulous, and it's in infancy. And and storytelling through video games, Roger Ebert said it will never be art. I think he's wrong. He was wrong. It was just, it's just beginning. He's still alive. I don't want to, you know, downplay him since uh, 2017. He's actually done three albums of Lost Themes. Uh, he started touring. He's now a musician, uh, full time essentially. At his son Cody, also tours with him, cool. and so he's doing that, and he's living off the money of Halloween. <laughs> I will say, kind of an ornery man. I've seen interviews. It, it seems like yeah, I've seen interviews with him where he's like, I could have, I could have played the game better. Yeah, but like. That's not who I am. A final cut, obviously, is the most important thing any director can have. Isn't given. You try to seize it. If you can't get it in, in writing, you seize control from the set. You just got to do it. You got to do it. I have to do it. Other people are more successful uh, working with others. Not me. I saw an interview where they were like, what makes a good scary movie? And he's like, well, they got to be scary. Yeah. And I was like, ah. and she's like, okay, um, cool. So, <laughs> but that's John Carpenter. You know, he's, he's allowed to be who he is. He's not his... playing games. Yeah, okay? yeah. He's getting checks. And as I said, he's a legacy. He's, you know, he's an icon and perfect for the Halloween season. Yeah. I, I will say as like squirmy as I was, um, a lot of the squirmy like stuff works. Like I, it. There's, it's purposeful. Yeah. Um, which I appreciate it. But anyways, why don't we get into our picks? Why don't we start with our one-star reviews and find out which of John Carpenter's things are maybe the real villain. Okay. <laughs> My one-star review is 2001's Ghost of Mars. It's real bad. I was... I've heard people defend it, and I'm like, Why? Why are you wasting your time? What's wild to me is that, like, again, this is the time period when, like, bad things or evil things just meant, like, I don't know, like, Queen of the Damned. Like, all those movies where it's, like, bad things are, like, you like fucking metal, rock and roll. Yeah, do you like like, new metal? Yeah, new metal. Do you guys like Linkin Park? Do you want some rap rock? Yeah, it's very that. And I'm like... Okay, just because they have, like, nose rings and, like, weird, like, face, like, tattoos doesn't mean they're evil. Like, but okay, work. Um, and, and also not even that, but, like, the ghosts, the titular ghosts of Mars, they're like a sand creature thing. Yeah. They're a ghost, if you will. And they 
go in and infect a person. And because they become infected, these people sharpen their teeth and like put fucking rings and like rods in their faces. And I'm like, why is this the expression of evil? Like that, right. that's very like native as shit. Right. It, it feels very like indigenous. Like yes. why? Yeah. Like, but like, Ooh, spooky. And so like, there's, yeah, this is fucked up shit about like nativists and indigenous people, but also like just very, I, I saw a youth wearing baggy black pants and like had a weird fucking earring and they're evil. Like, what is that? It's, I hate that genre of like, and it's specifically in the early aughts where like, because good was like pop music and like, yeah. you know, and the bad was new metal, which new metal is not good, but like I'm, it, it shouldn't signify like right. evil. Like it's like in the same way, like leather and like, you know, slick, shiny shit is like it, it, it all just doesn't work for me. This movie is about, um, like we mentioned, Earth has colonized Mars or is is is, is in the process of colonizing Mars. Um, but in the process, they have unearthed, unleashed these um, beings that live there. And essentially, these beings are protecting themselves um, and infecting these humans. And But the way that it is expressed is that they become like tribal and yeah. like uh, it's just really fucked up. And the whole movie uh, is being told by this woman. Natasha Henstridge yeah. of species fame. Yes, correct. Um, the most generic white woman. She's awful. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Like cannot deliver a line to save her life in yeah. this movie. Yeah. You know, I really don't understand you at all, Desolation. The only one looking out for me is me. Doesn't that bother you? Nothing bothers me. I stopped worrying a long time ago. Don't you believe in anything? I believe in staying alive. Yeah, but for what? Stick around. I might let you know one day. And also, again, she gets infected, but somehow is able to, like, fight her way through it because she loves Coke or whatever future Coke is. But also, like, there's so many, like, problematic things about this movie where Ice Cube... It's Ice Cube. Yeah. Ice Cube, who... He's a bad guy, a villain in this movie that is, um, they're going to go like, again, kind of like you said, themes of Assault on Precinct 13. They're going to transfer this bad guy, but then the ghosts attack. And so he is on their side to protect themselves. And I'm like, again, though, they made like iced tea. He is, they've turned him and his gang, like these thugs that are joining up with the fucking police to yeah. like help win the day. The police, and, and, which is also um, what's her face, um, Pam, Pam Greer. Greer. Yeah, Pam Greer, who's like a like once again, you know, I gave him credit for the Adrian Barbeau thing, but Pam Greer, who's like an aggressive predatory lesbian, isn't the, the then, whole thing that there's like a lot of lesbians now? Yeah, yeah, like. Jason Statham is like the titular one yeah. hot guy who like is wants to fuck everything. Jason Statham with a little bit of hair. A little bit of hair. I was like, <laughs> oh my god. Um, but he's hitting on the blonde lady because he's like, there's not a lot of us breeders left. Yeah. And I'm like, cool. So Cleo Duvall is also in this. Also, yeah. like she, poor Cleo Duvall. I know. Like I was like, girl, you deserve so much more than this. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, weird. Like weird choices. Like everyone's lesbian, but like also predatory about it. Yeah. And then like the native shit, like we mentioned earlier, this and, is our and, home now. And that's the other thing that sort of like sets it apart from Assault on Precinct Thirteen, because like you said, you you were sort of confused about where this gang came from and what they. And it's like fine. Like the the othering of the gang, maybe not great. 
but it's also like oh it's like a, a force versus a force and once again this feels like these are just creatures defending their land yeah it also like you said looks very bad yeah uh, ice cube famously hates the movie he was like he was very excited to work with john carpenter and he's like he's like i hate that movie it looks terrible like yeah it looks like really cheap like the yeah. fighting looks really bad for the i mean not that i'm expecting the world but like for even the time i'm like god yeah. they, it, it it doesn't look expensive it is just all around bad 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 so my film's not gonna be very far off from yours it's actually gonna be the one prior to that which is john carpenter's vampires from 1998 hate it hate it so much yeah starring james woods and this is gonna be very i'm gonna do this very quickly he's a vampire hunter he works for vatican his team is killed he's decided to go for revenge against the master vampire who did it but that master vampire has a mysterious black cross that's gonna make him be able to walk in daylight and then the earth is fucked and that's literally the plot of the movie this movie's almost two fucking hours long yeah there is the plot is stretched so thin on top of that James Woods, fuck him. Homophobia! Yeah, he plays the main character. Uh, Daniel Baldwin plays his sidekick. I was to say, the, the, they, they picked one of the Baldwins, the yeah. lesser Baldwins. Well, it's funny, Alec Baldwin was cast in it and then couldn't do it and recommended his brother. Why? Um, Cheryl Lee from Twin Peaks fame, who I feel the worst for in this movie. Uh, this movie is homophobic, it's mm-hmm. sexist, it, it's all bad altogether. It's funny, John Carpenter said he had a good time working with James Woods, who was famously difficult to work with, because he made him promise he could do one take as it's written and then improv the rest. And he was like, oh, the improvs are so funny. No, they're not. They're really not. Guess you, what? You can tell when they're happening. Yeah. His improv is saying, faggot? Yeah. Like, oh, are you, are, you, are you hard right now? You, yeah. You got a hard on when I... And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Have you ever seen a vampire? No. Well, first of all, they're not romantic. All right? It's not like they're a bunch of fucking fags hopping around in rented formal wear and seducing everybody in sight with cheesy Euro trash accents, all right? Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. Garlic? Want to try garlic? You stand there with garlic around your neck. One of these buggers will bend you fucking over and take a walk up your strata chocolate while he's sucking the blood out of your neck, all right? Some of these things are like little boy things. Right. Like, and I agree with you. And I especially agree with you about this movie. And that's what this way. It's funny because he said, you know, he was tired of vampires being treated as like gothic. He's like vampires, if they existed, you know, wouldn't care about humans. They would just be feeding on them constantly. And it's like, well, that doesn't work either the, because they would have overrun the earth. Isn't there like a right. And, the, and but then they, they try to explain like, oh, but they, they can't know. Like they they're they say small. Like, and, yeah. But then. Meanwhile, they're partying with, like, a bunch of babes and, like, freely talking about how they're vampire hunters. I was like, what is going... The universe that he has created for vampires here is super weird. I hate that he has to explain, like, garlic doesn't do anything. Like, they're explaining the rules of, like, what vampires are. And I'm like, okay, this is... They're like, it's basically sunlight and cutting their heads off and putting a stake in their heart. Like, that's it. It's... And that poor gal who's, like, basically just being drained the entire time. Yeah. Well, she, Cheryl Lee, as I mentioned, you know, she famously was on Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks, a lot of the times, all she got to do was scream. And I felt like on this movie, all she got to do was scream. There's there's an entire scene where Daniel Baldwin has her in a hotel room. And it's just constantly, like, slapping her around. Yeah, and she's, like, naked. Yeah. And it just feels like exploitation of the worst kind. And, like, frankly... We know John Carpenter is not a sexist. So it's frustrating to watch this and be like, I can see, like, a film critic called him out was like, 
if John Carpenter's not a misogynist, you know, you would be hard pressed if you watch this movie right. to yeah. and to realize that. And so I think this movie contains every bad thing that people accuse him of and it's amped up to 11 and it's once again that very like new metal like and yes like, the, like yes. the villains are are like even though they're not you know gothic and they're still like black coats and long hair and pale skin a lot and, of like, like chains yeah exactly what's wild to me is that like for someone who is so like every detail everything is like my vision but then he just like lets all this shit slide and yeah. goes and I, I mean like this is the man who's putting fucking like red kool-aid in every fountain when like vampires are around for like I don't know like vampires were here, um, but at this is letting James Wood just like make all these dick jokes, yeah, and like letting all this this really fucked up homophobic sexist shit just like go by, and he's like, yes, this is my vision. Like I don't understand it. I don't get it. And on top of everything else, the film's boring. Yeah, it's really boring. It's stretched so thin from its plot of moving to point A to point B to point C. Plot like twist: every the nest. church was yeah. in in it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, that's the other thing too. You're hiding, like, magical black cross for years, and you just sort of put it in, like, yeah. like on display yeah. in a church. <laughs> Cover it up or something. Yeah, it's something. Like, throw a sheet on it. God damn it. If I have to give the movie one piece of credit, I will say Gary B. Kibbe's cinematography is really great. I think it's one of Carpenter's best-looking films, and that budget, he was able to stretch that portion of it in terms of lighting and that, like, I'll give it that. And also the film was uh, was his only financially successful movie of the 90s. Wow. So, so yeah. Homophobia was very, very successful, yeah. very lucrative. Was there anything else that you saw that you didn't particularly like? Um, Let me see. What am I... Certainly there, was, there had to be something. But those, I mean, yeah, I was going between vampires and... So I, I think um, Big Trouble in Little China is like a little yeah. like hard to stomach. I think Village of the Damned. Oh yeah, Village of the Damned is real bad. I was like, this that, that like portion of time, I was like, does he even like what he's doing right now? Does yeah. he know what he's doing? He said after he made Escape from L.A., he, he didn't want to make movies anymore. And then vampires came along. And so that reinvigorated him and he had a good time on that set. But once again, like... Yeah, may, yeah. Maybe his like personal taste is a little off too because, um, well, when we get to our five star reviews, I'll talk about that. But. Okay, um, should we do five star reviews now? Absolutely. I think my five star review is "They Live." <laughs> I think "They Live" is the perfect like encapsulation of. John Carpenter's ethos of that, like humans are the evil, like we are yeah. the horrors, um, and and the horrors and the horrors, <laughs> um, especially the horrors, uh, and it's also you know him using his stylish um, eye, you know his sense of of atmosphere, um, put all together in this one kind of like candy coated film. It feels very throwback and retro, yeah, in a does. way. I, I always forget that they live as as late eighties as it is because it feels very seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even like the idea, like it's like Stepfordian. It's it feels like Mars Attacks kind of. <laughs> um, I can see that. And also like the, the, the pure insanity of Roddy Piper as the lead, who's like pretty good. Like you know because. I, think, I don't know if I can follow you in on that. I road. think he's pretty good because the movie is like so. Not, he's putting right. on glasses. And like the world turns into black and white. His, his 
line delivery is a little questionable. And I know the famous line. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> but like, really, but like the, the one where he's like. Every, every one of those moments, though. Yeah. Every like, single one of them. Lady, you've got scaby face or whatever he says to her. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think because there are so many, like, John Carpenter wrote these one-liners for him. And it was like, we're to set the camera down. And he's just going to, like, look like a fucking mountain of a man. And just, like, why is he running into this bank and doing the famous line, like, and I'm all out of bubble gum. Like, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? It's so weirdo. But for me, it works just because the movie is so, like, nonsensical and, like, when... It's really, I, to me, I laughed a lot in this movie. Like, the, the aliens turn and look, and he's like, ugh. I love the design of the aliens. And he said that he just wanted the aliens to look like people with their skin torn off. Like, that yeah. sort of, you know. But even, like, that, how the whole idea of, like, he's, like, going to see the newspapers, and the newspapers are like, conform! Obey! Obey! The very famous, you know, the, is it Shepherd Fairy or whatever, the, the guy that did all the Obey stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, that was inspired by that. It's, and, I mean, it... It's very heavy-handed, but I think it works. I think the whole movie is heavy-handed. I think... I agree. No, I think that's the strength of the movie. I think if that movie was going for subtlety at any point, it would have failed. And it's funny because there's been rumblings about a remake of it for at least a decade. And apparently the last iteration of the the remake, they decided they want to take the political stuff out. Because (laughs) the short story it's based on isn't political. What are they going to put in there instead? I don't know, but that would be real boring. Yeah. I... I don't know. I think he's like, you can feel the inspiration from him. Like he's clearly, and he's talked about, he's like Reagan fucking like at the time I was fucking furious and like, I couldn't believe. He's like, I hated the yuppies. I hated what was happening. He's such a hippie. He's such a like, you know, and it's to me, it works on all levels. Um, Is it his scariest movie? No, no. Um, I don't think he's even going for scares really. But like, I think the like existential dread of it all, like, you're telling me, and, and not only are is are they, you know, brainwashing other humans to, like, join them, but, like, the idea that they could pay off these rich humans yeah. to get on board. To conform. To conform. It's like, and these rich humans are like, this is the future. Like, they're paying us money. Like, that's true horror shit. Like, yeah. And I think it's, on some levels, like, the most scary because it's like, fuck, we're in capitalism. And that's the true, like, evil. Um, so yeah, that's they live. Uh, my favorite is, and, and I also went off a little off the beaten path because obviously like, obviously Halloween is classic for a reason. Obviously the thing is classic for a reason. I love those movies and I've seen those movies so many times, so many times that I didn't even rewatch them for this because I, you got them in the bag. Yeah. I can picture them in my head. I can tell you everything about them. So, but my favorite John Carpenter movie, the one that I always come back to is the fog. Mm -hmm. I love the fog because it's so simple and it's so... You know, it starts out like a fairy tale. It's a sea captain telling kids a story. Famously, one of the reshoots, because the movie wasn't long enough. So they added this whole opening sequence. I think the music is so atmospheric. It's just this really, like, once again, like three or four notes on a synthesizer. Just, But it's more contemplative. It's less hectic. And it's, it's really going for that old haunted house feel. Um, as I mentioned before, it's Antonio Bay's 100th anniversary, and 
there's all these disparate characters. You have Jamie Lee Curtis, who's a hitchhiker, uh, coming in and she gets picked up by Tom Atkins and they have like a little romantic subplot. And it's funny because he, John Carpenter apparently like based that sort of on the birds because to be Hedron's character Mm. and the birds shows up and that's when everything starts to go crazy in the town. And, you know, you have Adrian Barbeau, who's this radio DJ who broadcasts from this lighthouse. So she's there not only to keep the town entertained, but to also like talk to the ships to keep them safe. And what's funny is Adrian Barbeau, outside of the scene with her son, never interacts with another person in the movie. Like never interacts with physically. Yeah. She talks to people on the phone. She talks to them over the radio. But she never physically has a scene with anybody else but her child right. in the movie. Um, Janet Lee, who's like planning the town's 100th anniversary, and her assistant, who have a very funny relationship. This town should be proud of its past, but trying to get anyone involved in community affairs is like pulling teeth. Better get the estimates ready for the council meeting next month. Yes, ma'am. Sandy, you're the only person I know who can make yes, ma'am sound like screw you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Um, and Hal Holbrook is this priest who's sort of this like alcoholic, but also weirdly sort of like father of this town this rock of this town whose family has been in this place for ages so when these this mystical occurrence happens this weird thing that a hundred years from then no one would even be able to be like and that you know it it would be a story itself it would be this old ghost tale and i love that and i do think the movie's particularly spooky i think it's got a lot of atmosphere and like you said it is violent but it's not violent in a way that's like gratuitous no 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 i I think it's to me it's it's weird because halloween obviously is known as a slasher and it's all about like you know people will say it it defined the genre of like slasher but like the fog i think it's it's more gross and (laughs) like it's no one's like being slashed per se it's like grabbing hands and like there are people who are being killed but like it's not it's it's more kind of like I don't. I don't even know when they when the fucking pirate ghosts like show up and their eyes are glowing. It's not about like oh, ha! I got you and now you're murdered. It's like <laughs> your fucking spirit is mine because you have wronged me. Yeah, and I, and I love that, and I love the idea of that. Like, it's funny because in a way, it's the reverse of everything we were talking about in Ghost of Mars, which is not to say that right. these pirates, these leprous pirates, were indigenous to this place. But they were the people there that the that these other people schemed against. And they're like, hey, guess what? Your chickens have fucking come to roost. Yeah. And like, sorry that it took us 100 years, but we're going to claim our victims. We're going to claim our gold. But also, like, it's the 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 parallel to Ghost of Mars is really good because it's not. These are ghosts. Right. Why are they showing up with fucking guns and razor teeth? Right. In the fog, they come back as spooky ghosts. Right. In Ghosts of Mars, they're like Limp Biscuit. Like, right. I, it, I don't get it. Like I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't. And that's, I think it's so funny that to, to in doing this process and doing the research to find out that John Carpenter doesn't love the fog is wild to me <laughs> yeah. because I really think it's, you know, maybe, and, and maybe it's because it is such a throwback and I do have such a love of like those Universal Studios monster movies and, but that's what it feels like to mm-hmm. me. It feel it feels like something akin to that or like the next step from that. 
but but like as much as it has one foot in the past it really like moving things forward i've said on this show pretty probably on every halloween episode my favorite thing about a horror movie is the scare you see coming i don't like jump scares i find them boring there are jump scares in this movie but i also think a lot of times there's the scares you see coming there's the knocking at the door there's the people like when the fog creeps well, you, in you see that fucking fog you know shit's about yeah, to come down exactly they got that fog machine going right behind <laughs> you sir so goodbye to you but yeah i i don't know i truly think the fog is um you know i i think people talk about it as being one of his but i i i think it's both simultaneously like classic and underrated and and deserves its chance to be placed in that sort of canon when you talk about john carpenter right um can i just add to they live i just remembered this is the movie when like it kind of comes together where he's like oh wait (laughs) blue lives don't matter um poor people are being yeah like oppressed (laughs) yeah the police the police the police literally are are villains in the movie aliens who are oppressing the poor people who know that the aliens are out there and trying anytime the the poor people are like making breakthroughs and like that's when i was like oh it has all clicked like again yeah. i felt like his social commentary came together i just remember that no no you're right you're right too and yeah and i mean i i think i'm glad that both of us picked neither of the obvious choices because I, once again not that there's anything wrong with the halloween the thing they are masterpieces in my in my opinion i don't know i don't know how you feel about them, but like they've been talked about yeah (laughs) they've been talked about i mean i i'll say right now that i think the thing is like probably my second favorite yeah Um, mine too actually i'll be perfectly honest the thing is amazing it's i think it's him and kurt russell at their like best um again i think it's like the perfect blend of horror and social commentary um and and it really fucks you up though because at the beginning you're like why are they shooting that dog don't yeah and then you're like they fucking should have killed that dog (laughs) yeah exactly exactly that it's so funny too because the i think the reason people don't associate that with like when people talk about kurt russell and john carpenter like they they might mention the thing but like i feel like that people like really latch on to like the jack burton's the snake pliskins of it all and i think it's because the finality of the thing is just like that's it for that yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But he's very good. I mean, the whole, like, doing the tapes, the, like, nobody trusts each other. Yeah, yeah. when they're testing the blood. Oh, I, I jumped. I was all <laughs> around my room when I watched that movie. It's um, it's 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 a good one. Yeah, um, highly recommend. Was it, besides the thing, was there anything else that you saw that you... I will always go to bat, and once again, I know it's no one else's favorite, but... Memoirs of Invisible Man, just because I think it's, I think it looks so good and it's so interesting. And like, yeah, maybe like Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah is, you know, it's certainly no, you know, Hepburn. It's silly uh, Billy. Um, I wouldn't say it was my favorite or one of my favorites. I think if you want a little John Carpenter romance, I think Starman is the way to go. Yeah. Um, Starman's great it's moody I also think Jeff Bridges in there is giving a good performance of like alien but learning but also like you said good road trip movie Um, I think I think also if you're if you're like if you've seen the thing and you want to round out the apocalypse trilogy um, you'd have a worse time than watching like Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness both are fun both are weird and gross, mm-hmm. um, and 
uh, campy. You know, for for being a straight man, John Carpenter does get camp. Oh yeah, I, w- I was I can't remember the one of the first ones I was watching. I was like, this is Camparella. I mean, yeah. they live is pretty campy. I mean, the fog is pretty campy yeah. as well too. Yeah. So um, Prince of Darkness was fun. Um, very disgusting. Um, <laughs> disgusting. Disgusting. And someone's watching me is the other one I'll put in the plug in, which is the TV movie. Um, it, it's like an hour and a half. It's fun. Lauren Hutton's great in it. Um, but yeah, let's get out of our five star views and let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the fast forward. We have a new Halloween movie coming out. This Friday, Friday. nonetheless. So that you can both watch in theaters or you can stream on Peacock. And you know what? I read what Jason Bloom had to say about that. I fucking love it because he was like, my movie Freaky came out and nobody fucking saw it. And then everybody watched it on HBO Max as soon as it came on HBO Max. And so I'm not going to let that happen again. He's like, I'm proud of this movie. Go to the theater if you want to see it. But guess what? If you don't want to go to the theater, stream it. it. Here it is. Yeah. Um, I like that very much. I think there's also, there are a couple of Carpenter movies on Peacock. I think you can watch right now. Um, so go do that. Uh, you know, he is putting out music. He, he just, uh, he released an album like last year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a single came out at the beginning of the year, January 8th, 2021. There you go. So obviously John Carpenter himself isn't slowing down. He's 73, which isn't that old anymore. And so, I mean, he looks old. I will say that. He's, he's like, a white man. Yeah, and he smokes a lot. So I don't know if he's still smoking, but I saw an interview <laughs> from like, I want to say at least just like five years ago, and he started it by lighting a cigarette. And I was like, Jesus okay. Christ, buddy. Like, somebody couldn't get you the patch. Yes. Um, a nice nicotine gum. So I will say, if you're a kid listening to this, first of all, why are you a kid listening to this? But second of all, don't smoke. Don't smoke. It's don't not smoke. cool. I guess it cannot be understated how groundbreaking Halloween was. Yeah. Uh, and everyone that followed. Like, there certainly were horror movies before. Right. But but he laid out the template, you know. He, like, we wouldn't have the Jasons, the right. Freddy Kruegers, like, all of that that came after that. And which kind of, like, led us to, well, I would say is our, like, the millennial version of that. Like, with the screams that I know what you did last summer. Like, there is a legacy of horror filmmaking that you can trace literally to John yeah. Carpenter. There's a, I mean, there's a reason why Wes Craven, who was also considered a top tier genre filmmaker in Scream, you know, they're watching Halloween. They're yeah. not watching one of his movies. Right. They're watching a John Carpenter film. Right. Um, and so now, you know, and, and for as many bombs as he had, and he had so many bombs, um, so many of them have been revisited. Exactly. It's and- a reappraisal of everything. I was thinking about that actually on my walk today, um, because of an old man who walks. <laughs> and I was like, what must it be like to make all of these movies? And ha- and he's even said, he's like, every one of my movies in one way or another was shit upon when it came out. Mm-hmm. And what must it be like to make all these films and have them so reviled by whatever people... And then years later, when you're in your golden age, to have everybody be like, no, you're a genius. Yeah. No, you did all this. Like, yeah, I would be bitter, too. I would be a little bit angry. And like you said, he doesn't give a shit. He's yeah. proud of the movies he he made. He doesn't care what people said about them. But it must be fucking wild yeah. to be like, yeah, yeah I saw I saw this when I made them 
Why didn't you? Right. Where were you? He's like, now I'm 75 and can't do shit about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just pay me for my fucking grief. Right, right. You know, when I was a kid, I decided at one point I wanted to be a movie director and have a career in directing movies. And I got to do that. And uh, a lot of very talented people never got the chance to do that. So I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. He is just like now getting his flowers, essentially. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Flowers away, honey. Absolutely. Um, I, I just hope they don't turn into like some weird tentacle monster. <laughs> he loves tentacles also. It's the head within the head and tentacles everywhere. That's probably why he loves video games too. Because he's like, everybody else wants to do tentacles and heads. And... Yeah. Yeah. Those are his people. <laughs> um, do you think he'll make another movie? I don't. I don't think he'll direct another movie. Yeah. I think he'll maybe continue involvement in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if they'll all necessarily be remakes of his stuff, but I also think he doesn't want to do anything that's crazy hands-on. I think it's very much what he's saying about showing up, collecting a paycheck, and, and saying hi to everybody and leaving. And I think the the Halloween movies happened to excite him because they had an exciting production team that wanted his involvement and wanted his input and was willing to pay him for his input as well. Right. These are the Blumhouse people, right? Yeah. 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 And so I think that's what set this separate thing apart. I don't know if that will always be the case. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, when the prequel slash remake of the thing came out in the early two thousands, um, they didn't involve him at all because I think it's universal just like owns that. Mm. So then they were just like, whatever. And yeah, so I think, I think he, you know, if he wants to be involved in something, he'll get involved. But yeah, I think he's just sort of enjoying it. Like I saw, I saw him in an interview talk about having to fly to Reykjavik, Iceland from LA and he's like, it's 11 hour flight. Fuck that. Like, <laughs> no, so like, I don't think so. Yeah. So like, he, are we going to zoom it or? <laughs> yeah. So like he, you know, I think he enjoys his, his time, the time that he's, yeah. he has left. And he's like, I'm incredibly lucky to have made the films that I made to have had the control that I made. And I'm proud of the things that I put out. And really in the end of it, isn't that all you can hope for? There you go. I mean, in a couple, like, legacy iconic movies, no big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I had a lot of fun. Um, I certainly would never have watched a lot of these movies. Without, I worried. Without uh, this episode. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was surprised pleasantly. Uh, and, yeah, Gavin, I guess we are the true horrors. And we are. horrors. And we, horrors. Yeah, yeah. We're the true horrors and horrors. Um, evil is within, folks. <laughs> but, but if you want to contact us, evil people, us evil horror whores, yes, you can always find us on Twitter at, at the Mixed Reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in the Mixed Reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at the underscore mixed underscore reviews. And if you want to listen to our episodes, including our back catalog of spooky Halloween season episodes, you can always find us on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, all of them. And if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please stop by, 
leave us a five-star rating, and write us a little review. We will read it on the show. It really helps us out and gets us to the evil algorithm so mm-hmm. other people can find us yeah. and obey. And o- uh, obey. <laughs> we only have a hundred episodes for you guys to like parse through, so <laughs> yeah. get to it! Yeah, only a small number like that, so... <laughs> But thank you so much for listening to our John Carpenter dissection. We actually already have our next episode lined up. Mm -hmm. And we will come back in two weeks to share it with you. Bye. (laughs) Bye.